Hello, everyone. Hello. My name is Tom, and I have a manky eye. <laughs> I've got one good eye. Wait, no, that's my good eye. That's the eye that needs correction. And yes, I stabbed my eye on a plant, and it was horrible, and I couldn't see. And then my glasses fell apart yesterday, and this lens fell out. So, you know, that wasn't going to do much good. So if I lose myself in my notes today, tough, just bear with me. Um, I can see most of you, that's fine. Yes, my name's Tom, I'm one of the elders here, and it is a, it is a real privilege to be speaking to you this morning. We're going to be looking at uh, my rights versus being a servant of Christ. And we're going to be spending a little bit of time just looking at some definitions. I'm going to ask you three questions. And then hopefully we're going to unpack what the Bible's saying and apply it to our lives. Is everybody's phone translating me? That's really weird. Am I being trans... Peter pecked a pick of pepper peppers. <laughs> Did it work? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just being silly. I hope that works really well. That's really exciting. But my first question to you this morning is you need to wake up. <laughs> that was weird. The question is, what is good? Okay, what, what is good? Um, we've, touched on it. we've touched on it through worship. Um, we've touched on it through the words we've been having. It's been really interesting. But what is good? In a world where objective truth doesn't even exist anymore, what does the word good even mean to us? For example, if it doesn't cause me any harm, it's good. If it feels good, it is good. If it's consensual, it's good. If it offends, that's not good. Is the good news good? Or is the good news bad? When everyone here even might have different opinions of what good means. For example, for example let me just show you some pictures now. When, I, when you see the picture, I need you to shout out whether this is good or bad. We're going to have a live audience review of the picture. So, is this good or bad? It's good. Next picture, please. Who said bad? <laughs> Next picture, please. Fast car. Is that, is that good or bad? <laughs> Next picture. Money. Good or bad? Next picture, good or bad? Everybody that's saying bad is wrong categorically. <laughs> Next picture, good or bad? Mm. Mm. Next picture, good or bad? Oh, that's bad, apparently. Next picture. That was really weird. So that really divided everyone. Okay, finally, next picture, good or bad? That's chicken. Before you, I hear the goods, that's chicken. Okay, right. Interesting. Some of them are quite straightforward, right? The sunset, the mountains, maybe the car. But some of them divided you. Some of you feel like Marmite is good and some of you are wrong. But what about the knife? Well, the knife depends on the context, doesn't it? I think that's what some of you were thinking. Who's holding it, a chef or a criminal? What about the chains? Well, it depends on their, who they're on. Maybe they're on the criminal. But they're bad if they're on me. Chips and gravy, I mean, that's, that's geography, isn't it? If you go up north of London, people get a bit weird. Um, <laughs> I tried to think of the most objectively bad thing I could put 
up that was appropriate for a Sunday morning, and I figured slightly raw chicken, that's bad. No one on earth would want to find that chicken when they cut it open. Although, what if you were just about to serve it? And that was the moment you tested it, and then you realized it was raw and you were able to cook it properly. So maybe that is a good thing, actually. I'm going to just make the point a little bit more with this ancient story. It's 2,000 years old uh, from the Han Dynasty in China called the Chinese Farmer. Some of you might have heard it before. And the pictures are courtesy of artificial intelligence. They're all generated by AI art. That's weird, isn't it? Once upon a time, there was a China. No, there wasn't. There was a farmer. <laughs> and he had a horse. I don't need my notes. I know the story. The farmer had a horse, OK? And one day, the horse ran away. And it was bad. The villagers came round and said, this is such terrible news. You've lost your horse. And he said, maybe. The following day, the horse came back, and with it, it brought seven wild horses. And the villagers gathered, and they said, this is wonderful news. You now have eight horses. And he said, maybe. The next day, his son tried to break one of the horses in and was thrown off and broke his leg. The villagers came round, and they said, we are so sorry. This is terrible news. Your son has broken his leg. And he said, maybe. The following day, a government official came round recruiting for the army. And they rejected his son because of his broken leg. And the villagers came round and they said, this is wonderful news. Your son isn't going to war. And he said, maybe. And the story goes on and on and on. When we say something is good, we're saying it subjectively. And it depends almost entirely in the nature of the circumstances. And as Christians, who have our hearts and our minds rooted not in the temporary nature of this world, but on the eternal kingdom of heaven, we should be able to see things differently. Our, culturally essentially under our culture essentially understands the word good to mean something that gives us pleasure, something that makes us happy. And when we define good this way, it becomes a very difficult place to navigate as Christians. We need to be less like the villagers who are quick to declare whether something was good or bad, essentially morally right or wrong, and more like the farmer who was much more reflective about each situation. However, if your son breaks his leg, you obviously that's still bad. You still show him sympathy. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, give thanks in all circumstances, not because of all circumstances. And that distinction has been made before here. We don't rejoice because something terrible has happened and then deny the pain of the reality we're in. No. We mourn and weep with the pains and the trials of this world, but we hope and trust that the God of all creation, in his infinite wisdom, is able to bring eternal goodness out of every moment in our lives. Romans 8.28 says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are according to his purpose. And this rejoicing that he talks about, it, it's impossible. It's impossible without understanding that God is good. God is our definition of good. Not, not pleasure, not happiness, not holidays, not houses, not children, not career, not marriage, God is good. 
once we understand that that's our definition of what good is, we have a framework to respond to the situations that we find ourselves going through. Oswald Sanders points out in his book, Spiritual Maturity, that our definition of God should be anything that makes us more like Jesus. Each situation you find yourself in, whether it's a pay rise at work, or the car blowing up on the way to a rainy camping holiday, <laughs> we can ask ourselves, how is this situation going to make me more like Jesus? I was thinking that yesterday when I couldn't see anything. I was like, thanks, God. You're going to give me this before I preach on it. And in doing so, in recognizing that, that God works all things together for good, we can respond in thanksgiving in all circumstances. So you can see this definition of God, it acts as a filter. It allows us to filter out what the world, what the world is saying is bad or good or right or wrong. And we think, how does this make me more like Jesus? Those are the glasses we wear when the car breaks down or when work gives us a raise. How can we be more like Jesus? And I love that, in, I'm just going to read Psalm 34. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. I'll magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, all you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The lions suffer, the lions suffer and want hunger. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God is good. What are your rights? What rights do you have? Moving on to rights. Something that Sai touched on last week. And when you hear any repetition from Sai's preach, I just want you to that mentally and spiritually underline that. Because I think God wants a lot of this to go in. But this is an open question. Someone shout out a right that we have. I'm curious to know what's the front of people's thinking. Give me a right. Right of... That's the punchline. <laughs> Give me another right. Freedom of speech. Freedom of religion. Good rights. We know, we know lots of rights, don't we? The UN has 30 articles of human rights. The right to work without discrimination. The right to life. Those under arrest have the right to remain silent. If you're employed, you have a right safe to safe space to work. And most of these rights are good and they're there to protect you. And because our rights and our morals in the West have been founded upon biblical principles, we would recognize that most rights and principles that we are given are good and biblical. But more than our legal rights are these constantly evolving social rights to permit behavior and activity without criticism or being called phobic. And we need to be able, to, as Christians, to discern when someone's right to a behavior or action is contrary, not just to the revealed will of God for their life and for that person, but is also not good for the society that we're living in. And we need to have courage to speak up 
Accordingly, despite this cultural pressure we have to remain silent, to stay silent, because that's what the world wants from us as Christians, just to be silent, just be quiet, tolerate this, be a tolerant person. Shouldn't we be a tolerant person? Shouldn't we be tolerant? Being tolerant is good. We're constantly told, tolerate things, be a tolerant person. No. Jesus didn't tolerate sin. Sin is never good. Jesus didn't tolerate the Pharisees. He didn't tolerate the rich young ruler. His words actually drove him away. He didn't tolerate the traders in the temple grounds. God doesn't tolerate evil, and neither should we. Psalm 97, verse 10 says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Evil in all its forms must be confronted boldly and not tolerated in the slightest. However, we temper this Old Testament verse with this verse in 2 Timothy 24. It says, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So be gentle, be kind, not argumentative. These should be the hallmark of a Christian who hates evil. There's tension there, isn't there? Paul writes to Timothy to endure evil patiently, but he does not call him to tolerate evil in the slightest. Because in our culture, we have the right to everything. You have the right to indulge your guilty pleasures. You have a right to a standard of living. You have a right to a house. You have a right to a car, a smartphone. You have a right to feel good. Don't feel bad. You have a right to feel good. Do what makes you feel good. You have a right to love who you want, regardless of the consequences. That's your right. In fact, the consequences, they can be brushed under the carpet in the name of your right to find pleasure. You can be whichever gender you feel like, regardless of your biological sex. If it feels good, not only should you do it, but you have the right to do it. Your heart is the most important thing about you. And if you need to wreck your marriage and have surgery to line your life up with your heart, then you will receive the highest praise the world will give. The author Donna Tart wrote in The Goldfinch, the quote is, from William Blake to Lady Gaga, to Rousseau, to Rumi, to Tosca, to Mr. Rogers, it's a curiously uniform message accepted from high to low. When in doubt, what to do? How do we know what's right for us? Every shrink, every career counsellor, every Disney princess knows the answer. Be yourself. Follow your heart. Only here's what I really want someone to explain to me. What happens if one happens to be possessed of a heart that can't be trusted? If your deepest self is singing and coaxing you straight towards the bonfire, is it better to run away? End of quote. The Bible makes it clear that your heart and your feelings can't be trusted. We looked at Jeremiah 17 verse 9 last week. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And so I unpack that. No one can. That's what it's saying. 
It lies to us and it confuses us. And we need to take what our heart is saying and hold it up to culture. No, to the word of God. We need to hold it up to the word of God. Can we look at the next picture, please? So I, I took that on a disposable camera in 2006. That's fog. It's quite, it's quite boring. But I was at my sister's in Canada, and someone said there was a pod of orca um, whales nearby. So we jumped in the boat, and we followed the guide out, and we saw these amazing orca whales. It was really beautiful, and we lingered a bit too long. And before we knew it, we'd lost the person in front of us, and we had no GPS and no compass, just a map. And a map's actually pretty useless when that's all you can see. <laughs> and it's, it blew my mind that when you're on the ocean, fog is, t it's like on land, you can at least see like, okay, well, there's a tree there. I know that there's a tree there and I can walk past the tree. But when you're in a boat, it's the most utterly confusing thing in the world. And we try to follow like the wake of the boat in front of us. But obviously the, the wake doesn't go in a straight line. So if you're trying to follow something that doesn't stay in a straight line, you end up going right round in circles. If we try and follow our heart's desire, we will be taken away and we will be shipwrecked. And the word of God is that compass bearing. It's that clarity that we don't have ourselves. It's the compass bearing to a desperately sick heart. And it guides us and it corrects our thinking. But it's more than that because God gave us his Holy Spirit the person of the Trinity that was poured out on the day of Pentecost to live inside of us. And that causes our hearts to be in unison with him through prayer. His desires become our desires and his will becomes our will. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. This is Jesus who was the son of the living God. He laid aside all his entitlements and his privileges to serve humanity and to die in its place. It's the ultimate example that we're called to follow. He laid aside his rights. He laid himself down as a sacrifice so that we can take up his Christ and take up his rights to sons and daughters of God. And throughout the New Testament, we see time and time again that our role is to lay down what we are entitled to and take up the cross of Christ. And with it, the right, the right that far outweighs any other right that you possess, the right to become a child of God. The most profound verses, when you really make eye contact with them, a child of God. That's your right. Let's explore this. Turn with me to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 9. And we're going to look at verse 3. And we're going to see how Paul chose hardship over his rights. 1 Corinthians 9, chapter 3 onwards. It says, this is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we all have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right not to work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written about the law of Moses. Do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, 
doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us, because whoever plows and threshes should not be able to do so, should be able to do so in the hope of sharing the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. And Paul is demonstrating to the church that he has every right before God and man to be paid monetarily for the work he's laboring for in God. But rather than that entitlement get in the way and be a distraction to those he was preaching to, he laid aside his rights, which increased his hardship in order that the gospel would not be obscured and that Christ would be preached more effectively. He then says in Philippians 3, what is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Jesus is our goal. Jesus is our treasure. He's our reward. Our goal as a Christian is to imitate him. And in the process of following him and obeying him, we know him, and his power is made manifest in us. As we take on the perceived weakness of lowering ourselves down into servitude, as we surrender the privileges and the honors and the rights we deserve, that is when we join Paul. In, in uh, verse 10 of Philippians, he says that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. The power of the resurrected Jesus is made manifest in us when we surrender ourselves and our rights and our privileges to him. The gospel is always being proclaimed powerfully by those people who step down into servanthood and give up their worldly rights. The Moravian church sent missionaries all around the world in the 1700s. They prayed every hour of every day for 100 years. And from this little town, Hernhut in East Germany, the first global Protestant missionary movement was born. And listen to this account. Dober and another man, Nietzschmann, a carpenter and established church leader, were selected to be the first missionaries to make the difficult journey to St. Thomas, which is the West Indies. They arrived on the shore of the island on December 13th, 1732. Remembering the words of Anthony Ulrich, Dober and Nietzsche attempted to sell themselves into slavery in order to reach those already enslaved. The spiritual awakening among the slaves continued to spread like wildfire. Throughout the different plantations on the island, this was not readily accepted by the plantation landowners, and they made their displeasure known in their actions. Many slave owners beat their slaves for attending any Moravian meetings and would take all their books away if they got caught learning to read. However, none of this would deter the enslaved men and women. In fact, the crowds that gathered during the evening to hear the teachings only grew larger. End of quote. By resigning their privileges and their rights, they became the gospel to those who had had their rights and their privileges taken away. They became despised to reach the despised. They worked themselves to exhaustion to reach those who had had all their comfort taken away. 
Of 193 missionaries sent from Hanhu, 64 of them died of disease, giving up their fundamental human right in order to advance the gospel. Contrary to popular opinion, popular opinion that does not want to be corrected at all, every single race throughout the whole of human history has enslaved their fellow man. And the Bible has always had a counter-cultural transformation, either in the way that slaves are treated or creating the framework for abolishing the practice altogether. Galatians 3 describes the Bible's view on slavery perfectly. There is no longer Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You are heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. But our most perfect example doesn't come from Paul, it doesn't come from missionaries, but from Jesus himself. If you look at John 13, from verse 4 onwards, he says, So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. When he had finished washing, washing their feet, he put on clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash one another's feet also. I have set an example that you should do as I have done. Very truly, I, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater to the one who sent him. So Jesus was recognized by his disciples as being the son of God. They recognized him for being the Christ, for being the Messiah, who it was assumed would come with a great military army and he would throw off the chains of Roman captivity. But just as with most of the teachings of Jesus, he totally turned this on its head. Not only did Jesus fail to produce an army, but rather he came as a carpenter, even amongst his friends. He didn't sit back and allow them to serve him, which he would have had every right to do as God. Of course he would have done. But rather, he knelt on the ground and he washed the dirt off his disciples' feet. But then he instructs us to do the same. No one here is immune from that instruction. It's a total and complete and irreversible paradigm shift. That this is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings kneeling at the feet of sinners and washing away the muck off the street. It wasn't even efficient. You wouldn't, you wouldn't naturally think to do that. You delegate the responsibilities to people with a bit more time than you, right? That's, that's what we kind of, the business seminars would say. It's about delegation. It's about getting other people to do things. It's, it's you know, you're more effective if you, no, he did it. He was the king of kings and he did it. And he didn't show the disciples on the Sermon on the Mount. He didn't show it to the 72. He showed it to the 12, to the future church planters and church leaders. And I think... For us as, as elders and, and, and the leadership team, we've got to see that the call to servanthood is much, much more challenging. 
He didn't say, you know what, man, you've got no idea what I've given up for you. You've no idea how much this has cost me. I don't want to be here. You guys need to show me some appreciation around here. I'm busting my gut, and you're all sitting around like kings, drinking wine, eating bread. He didn't say that. He didn't even think it. I have. I think if we're honest, we've all felt those feelings when we look around us. But Jesus lived his life with such a controversial level of humility and servitude that it confounded religious and Roman leaders and perplexed those in power. But what did it do for the downtrodden? What did it do for the marginalized and the rejected? It lifted them up and it made them sons of God. Radical, controversial servitude should bring you down to the dirt, to the feet of those who you are serving, causing reputational harm. You shouldn't be there in the world's view. What are you doing? But it should lift up others. Are you tired of serving your brothers and sisters this morning? Do you find the work weary? Do you find yourself short on free time? Has it been too long now since man recognized your toil and you find the joy has gone? You're not alone at all. My friends, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross and he sets the same joy before you. The Father's reward for his faithful servant will far outweigh any hardship we endure for his name. So my final question to you this morning, and we'll have the band up, is how are, how are you serving the body of Christ? How are you serving him? He calls us directly to follow him into servitude, to be radical, to get dirty, to waste our time on trivial things like washing people's feet to bring people cups of water. You know, all the examples are so simple. You know, they're not grandiose ideas, big ideas. They're just bringing someone a, a drink of water. How much more valuable is it to his body when you bring them a cup of coffee because it's got caffeine in? <laughs> there's, a, there's a real honor that we've got to see in serving the body, a real honor. And Jesus puts his finger on it so many times. And <laughs> we only get one chart one chance in this life, one chance to serve him in this life, and then it's gone. And then it's our reward. And so Jesus, who had all the power and all the authority given to him by the Father, he took the time to lead his disciples into menial, dirty, and humble servitude of one another. And the church, this church, Christ church, needs to be radical in how we follow his commandments to us. I'll close and I'll pray. I think if we can stand... It says in Corinthians, if I speak the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. And I want to pray for joy this morning for people. If you're tired and weary and you, you just don't have that joy, I just really want to pray that God meets with you this morning. Yeah, Heavenly Father, thank you for your church. Thank you that you choose to be glorified in us, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you've given us responsibility to look after brothers and sisters, Lord God. Thank you that you just chose to use us, to, for us to be your agents, Lord. Thank you for this church here, Christ Church, your body. Thank you that you are interceding for us before the throne of the Father. And thank you 
Lord, for your example, where you knelt in the mud and you washed your, your disciples' feet, Lord, and then went on to be crucified. You didn't play any card. You didn't say, look, I'm off, I'm going to die. You guys need to pick up the slack. He just, you just got on with the work, Lord, because of the joy that was set before you. And Lord Jesus, I just want to pray for my brothers and sisters here, Lord, that we're filled with the same joy you had, Lord, because we can't do it on our own, Lord. Father, I pray that our eternal reward would be clear to us when we read our scripture, when we read our Bible, Lord, that we would see what is coming, the approval of the Father. Lord God, I pray that we would see the temporary nature of this life. Lord God, I pray that we would see the joy in giving someone just a cup of water. Father God, and for those people that have been serving for years and years and years, Lord God, would you give them a double blessing of your joy, a double blessing of your spirit this morning. I thank you for those people, Lord Jesus. We pray that in your name. Amen.